that's one thing that is great about the outdoor industry is, and I, I think it's one of the most special things is we all go out and recreate together and we're all friends. And so that's the unifying factor. And that's what we needed to make sure we didn't lose through the trade show discussion and move. Hello friends. That is Amy Roberts, the Outdoor Industry Association's Executive Director. I'm big mountain skier, Lindsay Dyer, checking in this week from Hawaii, where I'm learning how to kiteboard again and getting humbled. It's incredibly intimidating and also awesome and brain building and challenging, but it also is warm, a warm water sport. Oh, craving it. <laughs> if you have the chance, give it a shot. But back to Amy, who was previously the Director of Sustainability and a member of the Executive Leadership Team at Mountain Equipment Co-op, MEC, where she guided the Canadian outdoor retailer's commitment to business, product sustainability, and innovation. Her story is awesome, and this conversation, we talk about her journey to becoming such an integral part of the outdoor industry, and how we all can continue to move forward protecting our lands and building sustainable products. Thanks, Amy. And I hope the rest of you enjoy the show. So I guess let's just jump in into it. Like, how did, tell me your story. How, you know, so how did, how were you raised? How, I mean, you've done so much in governmental world lobbying and um, did you grow up as an athlete or, you know, what were you, how did you grow up? Well, I grew up in Colorado, but I grew up on the plains. And so out in eastern Colorado, and maybe you'd see the tip of Long's Peak on a clear day. But I also had the benefit of having um, two uncles uh, who did a lot of mountaineering, and they've climbed all the 14ers, you know, hiked all the 14ers in Colorado. And so um, my uncle that's closest to me in age, I'm the oldest grandchild, and my uncle Jim is the youngest um, in that five-member family. It's my, bro my uh, mom's brother. So he and I did a lot of stuff together and I was able to go out, you know, quite a bit with him and I still continue to do that. And so I always had, you know, the, the outside bug. And I think the other thing is we all know if you have mentors, that's how you get into outdoor activities. It's really hard to just take that on if you haven't been exposed to it. So those were my early mentors. Um, but what I really wanted to be was a journalist. Mm. And so, you know, when I started my career and even when I was in um, elementary school, you know, I knew that's what I wanted to be. And I actually had a family newspaper that I put out, reported on the activities of the family and did my own editorial cartoons and stuff called Amy's Advocate. Wow. And uh, how old are you? I was in fifth grade, I think. Yeah. Wow. So right so, at the age of your daughter right now. Yeah, exactly. And so you get inspired. And I think what I saw, I was inspired by the foreign correspondents then and the mm -hmm. women who, like Georgianne Geyer and some of these correspondents that were in these war zones or behind the you know Iron Curtain at that time and had just led the way in saying women can go out and adventure, but it was an adventure in a different way in terms of reporting what was going on around the world. So yeah, that was my inspiration. Cost. Yeah. Wow. It, it's amazing. I think of uh, that time for me, fifth grade, actually, I, I've, I still feel like I was so aware. And I, because of remembering that time, I will never treat a fifth grader like a kid because I felt more clear of my purpose and um, than 
some, you know, sometimes now, like I go back to that. Was that your experience too? Did, did you have any trouble with being taken seriously or not taking yourself seriously because people treated you like a kid or like a girl, for example, you know, like they can't, you can't do that. Um, well, I feel like the, um, I mean, a couple things. One is because the town I grew up in was fairly small. Um, I played, my dad is a really great golfer. And so I spent a lot of time playing golf and, um, and the thing that was about that was that basically the high school was so small that there was no women's golf team. And so I had to play on the men's team and, um, I had to play off the men's tees and I, was out there with all the men and they always gave me a hard time. Like they would do things, you know, more teasing, but they would, you know, empty my bag out on the ground and throw my clubs in the tree. And would so they do that to the boys too. No, no. Oh wow. It was more, they gave me a hard time. And like I said, it wasn't ever really malevolent, but, um, it definitely like thickened my skin a bit. And also I just learned how to take the teasing that I think the boys deliver. Um, but I also knew they had my back. And so um, I, that actually helped me quite a bit in working in politics. And also, I think just going out and doing outdoor activities later that sometimes there's more men than women is being able to hang with the men and being able to, you know, feel that you could speak up and you're part of the group and understanding what that dynamic is, but not necessarily feeling intimidated. So, and I think that's that's one thing that women always face is, you know, whether you're out trying to, you know, ski with the men or you're trying to lobby with the men, um, you know, you don't want to feel that you don't have a voice or that you can't hang with them. So, yeah. So take me from then. So you're 11. Then what's the next pivotal, you know, shift or, or significant point that you know gets us to here yeah I mean so I was a journalist at first and um, I think then you know the point was I started covering a lot of politics and um, then really the pivotal point for me was I had been covering the legislature in Idaho I where I was living at the time and I'd been covering the um, governor's race and so the candidate asked me to come be his press secretary and, and um, how old are you 24. So had you had you gone to college by then? Yeah, I'd been in college and I'd been working as a journalist for a while. Where, where'd you go to school? Uh, University of Missouri. Okay. So that, you know, going to the Midwest mm -hmm. was a big shock. Mm -hmm. And was that yeah. for their journalism program or any reason it was, in particular? Yeah, they have an amazing um, journalism program and they actually own an NBC station. Uh -huh. So you come out of college with real-time journalist experience because we had to put on a newscast. Mm -hmm. Um so my transition into politics really was the opportunity to work on this political campaign. And my candidate that I was working for ended up winning. Wow. So that was, I think, the next big thing as I became, you know, the governor's press secretary. And At I was 20, in their 24, 20s. 25. Wow. That's young. It was. And there's a lot of pressure in that job. Yeah. And you're at the center of attention and you're talking to the press. So... I would say I, in some ways, I didn't even know what a big job it was for how old I was. And that, that actually benefited me. So. Wow. And I mean, what did you learn? I mean, you won that time. So, I mean, what have politics taught you about winning and losing and fairness? And yeah, I think sometimes, um, well, it's taught me how to be collaborative and that you also, this is a long game you're playing. So don't, um, 
you don't want to shoot all your, you know, shoot all your bullets at once or you want to know, you want to understand that you're going to be playing a long game and that you need to build as many relationships as you can. Um, what, how do you create relationships and, um, and have your, obviously there's, you, there's agendas, like that's the whole point, right? You're trying to get your, everything passed through. So how, in your experience, how do you do that? Especially working with high powered, you know, politicians and, and men at a high level. I'm just, how do you do that? I mean, I feel like, you know, just kind of try to put that aside, right? And just go in, like the gender issue aside, and just go in and, you know, feel confident that you ha- you know your information. So I think the most powerful thing you can be is educated mm-hmm. and confident that you can actually tell the story better than anyone else in the room, and you have the data to back that up. Mm-hmm. And I think one thing that's missing today in our political system and it's too bad that it's so polarized is even you know 15 years ago it was different where you had relationships with all sorts of people and those relationships made it so that you could talk about issues where you didn't agree without demonizing the other person and now that's gone away so a lot of it was building relationships with the other side and you're friends with them you understand you know socially you might hang out so when you give them a call and you don't agree you don't agree but the other person's not a bad person they just have a different point of view and we've sort of lost that now explain that further so i what do we what i mean that sounds awful right i mm-hmm. guess that's that's what our country seems to have been built on is is the the melting pot of different culture, different beliefs, and that, that being okay. I mean, where do you see that going? Especially now, I mean, Facebook, for example, you only see what you want to see, so you assume everyone thinks like you. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, it is a big problem, and I... I do think the modern media has some responsibility for it, having been a journalist, where... Instead of just delivering the news now, we have talking heads that either are from this side or that side or defending their candidate or attacking the other person's view. So I don't know. I do think it is partially just getting back to human interaction and one-on-one conversations and coalition building. So, you know, I, I don't know how necessarily we get back to that, but I do think you still see it in politics at the state and local level because people actually have to come together and work together. And so one thing that's encouraging to me is um, the Montana governor, Governor Bullock, was here this week, and mm-hmm. I had an opportunity to spend, you know, 30 minutes with him just having a chat. And he said, I said, hey, do you think you can get along now with the governors? Like, do the governors still get along between Republicans and Democrats and you're able to talk with each other? And he said, yes, it's still the case. And that's kind of my hope is I do think at that state and local level, um, the governors actually have to make decisions. They don't just vote. And so, you know, to the extent we can get some really good things done there, I think it still exists. I think it's more in Congress where we have so much divisiveness. Do you feel like in the end it's all about communication skill? Yeah, I think it's communication skills. Um, I also think it's having understanding what to be upset about and then what what you need to get over pretty quickly and so I hope being objective yeah being objective and then also not 
taking slights or holding grudges too long. And I mean, you know, one thing I've learned over my career is to try to just put things behind me. And um, you must have to have such a thick skin. Yeah, I mean, this trade show move was definitely difficult because I don't I really don't like to be so front and center and out there. I'd like to be more supportive behind the scenes. Um, But I had to be pretty vocal and trying to lead the industry. Um, but I also through that whole experience, I think you hear what people have to say and then you understand like you might really strongly disagree with someone, someone today and tomorrow you're going to call and ask for their help. And that's one thing that is great about the outdoor industry is, and I, I think it's one of the most special things is we all go out and recreate together and we're all friends. And so that's the unifying factor. And that's what we needed to make sure we didn't lose through the trade show discussion and move. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, go back through, let's go back historically. So okay. you've got your, you just, uh, you know, won this, this race. What What's next from? Well, so I, yeah, so I worked in politics and I, you know, I spent that time with the governor and then, um, I ended up just staying in Idaho and I was actually working in tech and, um, I worked for Micron and I actually had an amazing boss there named Steve Appleton and he was the CEO and he became CEO at, um, you know, really young age, I think 29. And so, I, when I look back on it, you know, he's one of the people that, um, really inspired me and, he, you know, I did a lot of the lobbying work for Micron, but also um, Steve inspired me through his leadership style. And the thing I always took away from him is he had worked his way up and he never forgot where he came from. And he just stayed, to, you know, a real person and built relationships one on one with even though Micron at that point had 20,000 employees, um, the loyalty that he got from those employees. And so you know, I think that was just a leadership style for me in terms of saying thank you um, to all the people that are doing the work that help, you know, wherever you're working be successful. And if you're in a leadership role, help you be successful. And so as a leader now, I've tried to remember, you know, all of the events that we do and the accolades we might get for having a great breakfast or producing something, you know, good on behalf of the industry only came because of our staff. So I learned that from him. And, um, the, and so basically I did that for six years and then I had started rock climbing more and more and I was spending all my free time doing that. So I decided to quit my job and take a year off and go climbing, mm-hmm. which I was, you know, early 30s. So my dad was pretty horrified because mm-hmm. I had a well-paying job mm-hmm. and um, and I didn't know what the future would hold. But it was one of the best things I ever did because... I had the freedom of having this year off and I lived in Vegas, spent a lot of time rock climbing uh, at Red Rock Canyon. And then in the summer, um, I lived in Yosemite and on the east side in the Sierras. And uh, one of my most memorable trips during that whole period is I did a trip, um, a ski traverse um, in the eastern Sierras, basically along under the Palisades, Mm -hmm. along the John Muir Trail. Mm -hmm. And it was amazing to go in there in April and ski it because that trail's so packed in the summer and in the winter, you know, spring, no one's there. How long was it? It was a week. 
So you were yeah. winter camping and winter camping, carrying all of our own gear. And um, the it's funny because when I was climbing, and even on that trip, but more so in the climbing, usually I was the only woman again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So all my climbing friends were men. Were you in a leadership role at that point, or were you one on the? I'd say side? I was more. Um, they were mostly like a lot of guides. So they were all better than me. Um, so it was that, yeah, I think the instinct is to like take care of the girl, mm-hmm. <laughs> which sometimes I probably appreciated. Yeah. But then also, you know, just encouraging me to like take the sharp end at some points and things like that. So do you feel like any of those outdoor pursuits, you know, have been directly, have taught you anything that you've directly used in the political world? Skill sets or? Sure. Like I think grit. You know, and um, just being able to stick to a goal and ha- like having grit or stick to itiveness that sometimes you're uncomfortable or it's cold or you're afraid. Um, and that can be the same as, you know, advocating is that some of these efforts take a long period of time. And if you get to set back or you give up or you get demoralized, um, whether you're out trying to complete a route or you're trying to get a bill passed. You can't do that. You got to shake it off and take a weekend off and come back fresh on Monday, keep working mm-hmm. on it. What does motivate you? Like I, now you're like the face and you're the voice of our entire industry. <laughs> how does that feel? And, and how do you stay motivated and clear about, you know, what we're all here to do? Well, I mean, I definitely think it's, I'm grateful for the opportunity, but I also think it's an immense responsibility. And I think one of the main things is to make sure that um, we stay bipartisan Mm -hmm. because that's one of the main um, strengths strengths of our industry, right? Is Mm -hmm. that we have people that participate and love the outdoors and they have all different political stripes, right? Mm -hmm. And and I think that's actually something we can bring in a place that's pretty divisive right now. Um, but I also think we have an obligation and I see our companies expecting that more and more that we step up and defend public lands if they are under threat. Um, and what, what I've said to myself, but I've also told our government affairs staff and really our whole team during this time is if we stay where our members are and we reflect what our members want us to do, then we'll be fine. Even if it puts us on the opposite side of some of the things from the current administration, like we haven't changed our views or our core values. We just have some people in the new administration that don't agree with us. So, but you're still just representing your members. Yeah, and we just if we stay true to our values and our brand's values, then we'll be fine. And we need to just have that as our guiding light. And then that makes it so you don't have to question where you are on issues. You just have to go in and stick with that and then make the argument. So just to give people context... You represent the Outdoor Industry Association. That's right. And what exactly, I mean, obviously this year it makes so much sense of what that represents and what that's doing. But in general, why was that created and what, you know, what has been your role? So it was created more than 20 years ago, and it really was around the idea that the industry should come together and be unified and move forward on issues that matter to our to our customers and our, you know, brands and retailers. So was it always political? It was started around advocacy for sure. Okay. And so um, that was the initial goal, and it more focused on both 
creating areas to recreate, but also conserving lands. And then after, over time, we worked on other issues. So of course, the product sustainability work is mm -hmm. newer, but um, has high member engagement. And that's, I think it goes hand in hand with the advocacy work, because it's really about how do you make products that are lighter on the planet and mm -hmm. have a lower footprint on the planet and also treat the people who are making them well. And that is about keeping the places we recreate pristine by not um, harming those places by how we manufacture. Yeah, it's a tough battle because on one hand, you're trying to support uh, an industry that needs to make money by yeah. creating products. And selling more things. And selling yeah. more things uh, while protecting these lands and the people. I mean, in some ways, it's uh, it fights itself, right? I, I know that you had a big, I mean, did you create the Eco Index and the HIGG about, the HIG, yeah. which is uh, all about creating sustainable um, products? Like, what, what did you find out with those things? Is it about striking a balance or is it no matter, personally, I've always wanted to create products that do no harm, but, but that's virtually impossible. Yeah, until we get to, you know, completely closed loop where you just take this shirt and make a new shirt. Mm -hmm. We're a long ways from that. Um, there's harm in all in creating. So I feel like part of it is using less water, using chem chemistry that's not as harmful but produces um, the performance that you need, right? You want to go out and not, like, not sweat but not get wet, mm -hmm. right? So we have performance products. So our industry is uniquely positioned to drive innovation in that area because we're making products that people take outside, and they, it's a life-and-death situation sometimes. Like, these products need to perform. But the other thing is the more people who use our products – and the more durable they are, that's better too. Because if people keep things longer, you don't have to replace them. You can keep that jacket for a long time and it's well made and it's still functioning. And then the other thing is the more people we bring into the outdoor lifestyle, the more advocates we're gonna have for the environment and for public land. So, you know, I think part of our responsibility is to just get more Americans active. And then the other thing, of course, is like healthy, happy people. And that's really what inspired me after taking that year off to go climbing. Um, it was such a gift, and it was amazing because I had this year where I didn't have emails to respond to, and I, like, the world slowed down, and I often reflect, you know, this one day I was sitting at Red Rocks, and it was just this perfect day in the sun on the sandstone, and just knowing, like, this was a precious moment because life moves so quickly and it really inspired me once it was time to get a job again that I wanted to work in the outdoor industry and use my skill set around lobbying and advocacy in an area that I was personally passionate about so that's when I moved back to Colorado and started looking for the job at OIA. And how, how long have you been in this position? I worked at OIA from 2005 to 2011, um, doing government affairs and sustainability. And then I went up and worked at MEC, which is like the REI, like the of, REI Canada. of Canada. Right. <laughs> they don't necessarily want to be called that, but right. it got started based on REI. Mm -hmm. And then and I got to live in Vancouver, which of course is amazing beautiful city. And um, then when the executive director position came open two years ago, I moved back. And took that job, the job I have now. Right. And so you just you just put out this report 
saying our industry is $886 billion industry. That's yeah. like four times bigger than the beer industry. Right? Yeah, yeah. So I'm just curious. A lot of people are saying, like, how did you get these metrics? It's huge. And I think that that, that number has brought a lot of attention um, from the outside world. But, yeah, there's also, like, how, how did you get come to this number? Well, this is the third time doing the report, and... I think we're actually more confident in the numbers than we've ever been because we increased the sample size 70% this time. So our data is just better. But When you say that, what does that mean? Increases? Like we went out and interviewed 26,000 people to get the number. 26,000 people. And those surveys are long because they're asking... Is this outside of our country as well? Because that's like the bigger than the GDP of Mexico and Turkey. Yeah, it's no, it's just U.S. consumer spending. Okay. So yeah, we went out and... Uh, we just interviewed Americans, and you know, one of the um, missing pieces from our economy before was the fact that um, there's so much travel and tourism related to outdoor recreation, and we weren't capturing that. Mm -hmm. So, what I think it helped to show is that um, our industry is spread so broadly across so many job categories, and we weren't necessarily capturing that by just showing our outdoor gear sales. I see. And so, so know, basically travel. So the travel so, and tourism is a huge part of that number. So anyone driving? It's um, so you had to go out and be going on a trip, whether it's a week long trip or one day. But the prime purpose of whatever you were doing needed to be outdoor recreation and one of those activities that we identified. And then whatever you, you know, if you had purchased gear, if you bought gas for that trip, if you ate at this restaurant, stayed in this motel, stayed uh. at this campground, that got captured. And so that's what's in there. Now, if you, we really did want to be conservative with the numbers. So if you were visiting your grandma and that was like the main point of your trip and you went on a hike one afternoon, we didn't capture that. So the primary purpose needed to be, I'm going on this trip to recreate. Hmm. That's incredible. Yeah. I think it also shows the trend you know, that it's cool to be outside. And maybe even if you were going to see your grandma, yeah. you you tell your boss you're going for this cool hike, right? Yeah. And you're yeah. the water cooler chat. Yeah. Well, if you look at the, you know, and I think going back to something that brings all Americans together, and I, you know, I think one of the best things is if you are, if you have a disagreement with someone even at work, maybe the best thing you can do is go for a hike on your mm -hmm. lunch hour mm -hmm. because, you are outside and already we know like being outside slows down your heartbeat, makes you just feel happier. And so you work out your differences too, but you also understand um, where the person's coming from and the different activities they like to do. And that's where I think we see when you talk to someone about what's a strong memory from your childhood, a lot of people will talk about a trip to a national park or that, um, what, what do you remember about your dad? Well, he took me fishing. Right. And so then you break down those barriers. And I mean, a good anecdote is, um, we went in to see, um, one of the congressmen from, um, Illinois and, um, Congressman LaHood. And I thought, like, I looked at his district and I didn't really see a lot of outdoor recreation. So this was a couple of weeks ago. I wondered, you know, what are we going to talk with him about? And so we went in and he was so happy to see us. And he started talking about how every year he does a trip with his sons where they 
come out here, and um, the last one they did is they did a backpacking trip through Grand Staircase, Escalante, and I asked him, did you get a guide? And he said, oh, no, we did it on our own. They hiked from one side to the other, and wow. that's impressive because mm -hmm. they are so not. So easy to get lost Yeah, there. they're not. It's not obvious, mm -hmm. and you don't want to get lost in the right. desert. And, um, and the year before that, they had done a similar thing in the Wind Rivers. So immediately... He's probably going to be our industry's advocate. And we thought, I'm not sure, mm -hmm. you know, given where he's from. Mm -hmm. So that's, and, and the other thing is when our members go in, um, or we have athletes, of course, that go in and see members of Congress, we get the member meeting because people want to meet our mm -hmm. famous athletes, or they want to talk about like how much they love REI and their member card. And so... Hmm. We're fine. So do you think that's that's going to be our strategy moving forward to protect these wild places? I mean, wh how do you see... It's true. The people light up when they talk about something that, that matters to them. At the same time, though, I wonder if, if that means, you know, they might want to protect it, but just enough for themselves. Or, you know, this privatization of our public lands. Yeah. Like, I, how do we make them care about the general public and, and giving new people an opportunity to have those experiences? Well, I think um, people generally want a better world for their kids, and that's a universal wish. And so part of that is the ability to go outside and have the experiences you did growing up. You want your kids to have that opportunity, and you want actually them to have a better opportunity than you did. Mm -hmm. um, and so I do think while we go in and make the economic argument around job creation, and I, that is very powerful, and we'll talk about that, we're also going to talk about just the intrinsic value of our public lands. And I think this recent monuments review actually has really shown that because they're reviewing 26 monuments, and they're spread across the country. And so, you know, they engaged... Americans all around the country instead of just, you know, people in Utah. And um, the fact that there are anywhere from a million and a half to two and a half million public comments, I think that might be the biggest. It was 2.7. Yeah. That was the final I number. I mean, so, and nine out of 10 said leave the monuments alone. So. Yeah, I have to admit, um, this whole administration, being an athlete, uh, I've always been like a closet environmentalist and felt like, well, that's not my, my area of expertise. What do I know? Uh, and so I'll let the professionals do the job. But as soon as you know, this administration started messing with our public lands, I have to admit, I, I didn't even know about some of these national monuments. Uh, obviously, the national parks get a lot of attention, but they're also so regulated. And the monuments, uh, you can camp anywhere. You can bring a dog. And uh, there's sort of these gems that... It has forced me to become more active, even though I still feel ignorant. And I think uh, I'm hoping that a lot of people feel the same way, is that we've stopped waiting for someone else to do the job or to stand up or to say something because uh, I, I admit that I don't have all the information and that's why I'm trying to learn from people like you. Uh, but yeah, any any suggestions or techniques that that we can have as citizens who, who don't know all the sides of the issues um, and, and where we can have a voice and, and make an impact. 
Well, I think especially for athletes like you, um, you have an opportunity to inspire people who want to be like you. And so, the, you know, you have a big social media following and there's an opportunity, like everyone wants to see the great shots that you're posting and be inspired by your adventures. But then you also have the opportunity to, you know, put in there here's other ways to get involved, right? And do some education. And I don't think that um, people need to get so educated that they have to understand the intricacies of land management planning. And that's why we have people that do that at the agencies. But this general notion that public lands are an American birthright and they could be threatened. And so here's some, you know, three simple things you can do to get involved. And so that people understand we can't take it for granted and that if we don't stand up for the lands, then the opportunity to get out there could be in peril. Mm-hmm. And I think that both um, our brands have been doing that and talking to their consumers. And I think athletes play a, a pivotal role. And so, you know, yesterday we had the public land celebration. Um, we went to the Capitol and Conrad Anker was one of the speakers and he was we were waiting for him because he was not there not there and we knew he was back in the march and finally when he got up there he was sweating because he had to run up the hill to the Capitol and he said that he just kept getting stopped by reporters along the way wanting to talk with him and it was because people know who he is Mm -hmm. right so he's an advocate and he's well known and he has a big following and he talks to a different group And like one of the best examples I can give you for that was um, President Obama went to Yosemite last year and he stood in front of Yosemite Falls and he talked about the importance of outdoor recreation and talked, you know, he talked about our numbers and um, the White House contacted us and said, hey, do you guys want to take over the White House Instagram feed with um, and if you could pick, you know, 10 athletes to do that. So we had this. 12-hour period where, and you can go back it, I'm sure it's um, yeah, still Yeah, I mean, up. I remember that speech. Yeah, and you could, um, so then athletes were up there taking over the feed and posting pictures and then talking about what they do, but also, you know. The importance of conservation. Public lands. But mm-hmm. what I saw is you had this mix of people following these athletes and now people following the White House Instagram feed, and it's not necessarily like the same people. Right. And... The comments were just awesome because hmm. you had this mixing of groups. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember one of the funniest ones was Jimmy Chin went last and he posted a picture, that famous picture of Alex Honnold sure. on, on Half the ledge. Dome on the mm-hmm. ledge. And this woman wrote, tagged her friend and said, hey, you know, we were in Yosemite last week and I'm so relieved we did not do this hike. <laughs> and she was totally serious, you know. Right. So you see... There's this great opportunity to reach out to people that maybe aren't following Jimmy Chin on Instagram. Right. Or people like Jimmy Chin now have new followers, political influence that we never imagined as athletes we could have. So, yeah. And I think that's like, of course, your opportunity as well. Well, and and speaking to Sally Jewell, she she said over and over um, people who have are savvy on social media uh, actually have a lot of power. And so anybody who might be listening, uh, especially up and coming, the younger generation, you have so much more power than you think uh, to educate your friends and inspire friends to get outside and to to learn the issues. Um, Yeah. So you don't have to be a politician to to move the needle. No. And I actually think it's a grassroots movement. 
So, and it is filled with inspiration. And I think that's um, where people who do have a big following have the opportunity and I think almost an obligation, right, to take that attention that's on them and not only inspire people to get outside, but just inspire people to take other actions. So. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks for what you do. I can't imagine. The world is asking you to step up, and uh, it's been beautiful to watch you. Is there anything, uh, any mantra that you that you tell yourself, or or that you would tell your younger self uh, at a time when she really needed it? Yeah, I think it's just um, stay humble, and you know, stay true to your values, and then. Sometimes you just have to maybe retreat inside yourself a bit and re refresh or, you know, get energized again, and then you can come back out. What is your so. ultimate goal? Like, what is the vision that you would like to see for on behalf of our industry, but also our world? Yeah, just that, um, you know, I what I really want to see is that more people embrace an outdoor lifestyle and that they see themselves in it. And when they think about how to spend their free time, they choose to go outside. And I think the other thing is just really creating and building cities where you can incorporate the outdoors into your everyday life. And I think that's so powerful. So I think the more outdoors we get, um, the better off we're going to be as a society. Awesome. Thanks. Thank what a you. Picture. <laughs> Cheers. Embrace the outdoor lifestyle. Go outside. <laughs> I couldn't have said it any better. I want to personally thank Amy again for taking the time to be on the show. And I hope you enjoyed listening today also. Shoot me a message on Instagram, Twitter, or YouTube and let me know what you thought about the conversation. Thanks so much for listening. And I hope today inspired you somehow to show up for something you truly believe in. Or something you've been wondering about for a long time that makes your heart sing, but doesn't necessarily make sense in all the other ways, you know, financially or because your friends or parents or whoever will approve. That's where the magic is, unicorns. And that's where I'll find you. (laughs) I'm Lindsay Dyer. See you in the mountains.